Well, let me introduce you. Etgar Karat is an Israeli writer known for his short stories, graphic novels, script writing for film and television. He's won the Prime Minister's Award for Literature. He's received with his wife the Camera d'Or in 2007 at Cannes for their film Jellyfish, which is being screened today in Ottawa. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Happy to be the Bibliophile. Could you give us a brief synopsis of the film? Oh, you know, whenever it comes to stories and, and films, uh, it's always tough for me to, to to give some sort of a synopsis because it's kind of... You always have this idea that if you were able to say it in a few sentences, you wouldn't have made that film yes, or written the story. It's like a poem, isn't it? You, you can't describe the poem. You have to read the poem because the poem mm-hmm. is it. Yeah, and you know, many times people t- tell me, can you give us a brief introduction of what's happening in your short story? And I say to them, well, actually, the story is shorter than the introduction <laughs> yeah. that, I, that I give, you know. Yes. But uh, Because you do write sh- really short, short stories, don't I, you? I write uh, really short stories. Well, I would say that, like it's three stories that take place in Tel Aviv. The main protagonists are female characters, and all the stories take place around the Tel Aviv beach area. Okay, that's good. Okay. Yeah, that's okay. good. So, why jellyfish? As a title? Yeah. Well, the thing about the jellyfish, it's a creature that doesn't control its movement. So, the currents take it to all kinds of places. And there is something about it that, you know, a jellyfish can sting and hurt you, but it's not like a predator attacking you. He never meant to hit you in the first place. At the same time, uh, there's something about the jellyfish that... Uh, it's also it can do a lot of damage, but it's also extremely vulnerable. It's an army with no shield, with no skeleton, no protection whatsoever. And I think that the characters in the movie are very much like that. They hurt each other, but unintentionally, and at the same time, they're very, very vulnerable. And I think that each of them kind of have some point in the movie where they can try and turn into a fish and kind of go against the current, or let the current keep taking them. And those choices kind of affect their fate. Jellyfish are also beautiful. They're beautiful, but the, the, the thing that I think makes them beautiful is that, is that it's one of the few basically transparent animals. It's almost this kind of, a, let's say, a metaphor for some sort of honesty or earnest, earnestness yeah. and a fragility. Because you, you look, you know, you see everything in it. You know, you don't know what goes in, in, in a square's head. But you do see everything that goes inside a jellyfish. This is your metaphor for vulnerable people. Yeah, it, when when Shira had written the, the screenplay, my wife, she wasn't that sure about the title. But the thing is that all the other titles that came to mind seemed to be either kind of trying to sum up the movie or because it's a moody storyline story more relevant for one story than the other and there was something about the jellyfish because the the film is so close to the beach and the water and the water has such, such a, a huge element in it that uh, it seemed natural to kind of choose uh, something that is amphibic in nature the movie starts off in a quite beautiful way there's a there's a sort of you're not sure what the background is and then you realize that it's a big blue truck that moves out of the way. I found the film very uh, painterly. There's another scene where there's a close-up of the, of the cast yeah. of one of the characters, the bride who breaks her leg trying to get out of the toilet stall. 
And then the, the, the hospital that she's in is brilliant and white. Are you intentionally using a painter's brush here? I don't know if it's intentionally, but intuitively for sure. When we worked with our cinematographer, he's amazing, his name is Antoine Berlet. Many times we would show him paintings as references for frame. For example, there is a scene where the bride is trapped in the, inside the, the restroom, she can't open the door. It's shot from the top and she has this huge dress and the dress kind of fills the, the, the stall and she's almost like drowning inside her dress. Almost like a jellyfish. It's almost like a jellyfish, but, but the reference that we took is a Marguerite painting of a, a huge rose trying to open inside a very small room. So many times when we wanted to express something, we could we could show a, a cinematographer a painting. There is a part in the end where Batia and the little girl say goodbye under sea. Yes, this is the young uh, waitress. Her life changes because of this, little almost girl. like a little mermaid comes out of the water, right? It doesn't have parents. And yeah, so basically the frame wears a part. It's very much like the painting of the creation. So I think that many times visually our references came from... I know that many times filmmakers think about a scene in a movie, but we very much so many times thought about just a painting or a photograph or an illustration or another work of art that we would have known and we kind of adapted it. A lot of what you do is sort of interesting paradoxes and playing, juxtaposing serious and not so serious joy and sadness and sorrow and yeah because you know it's it's like when you say juxtaposing it has a presupposition of an inherent uh, dichotomy in life experiences but the fact that we say you know uh, there is a, a happy experience and a sad one it's as if like they're kind of bipolar like but but a lot of the experiences are both happy and sad being a kid and going to first day in school or even uh, like hang, playing soccer with your friends Sunday afternoon and you're having great fun but you say wow it's getting dark and Monday we we'll go to school again yes. you know it's a lot of it has to do with your chosen outlook on life let's play the game in the present on Sunday afternoon or let's play the game and also regret the fact that tomorrow is going to be school. It's a choice, isn't it? It is, it is. You know, it's funny because my wife, she's a, primarily a poet, and I'm, I write prose and screenplays, and I think that uh, it has to do with the fact that poetry is placed in the present, while there's something about the uh, prose that, that you're always saying, where did the character come from, where is he going? How is he changing? How is he changing? But, but let's say the moment, you don't see the moment as reality, but the moment is just one point in the process. And I think that it's, that it's not a, an arbitrary choice. I think that there's something about me is that, you know, when I have a reading event, you know, I say, wow, just before I had a reading event, you know, I had pasta and there was a stain on my foot and... After I finish the reading event, I should look for a wet towel because I have an event tomorrow in the church and they probably ask themselves where did I get this stain from, you know? So I do all this when I read a story. So, so is there something in my nature that is it, it's never kind of totally in the present? And the funny thing is that the only time I have this subjective feeling that I am in the present is when I'm writing. Yeah, you get completely absorbed in the task. I find that too when I'm editing interviews. Yeah. I find everything else disappears. It's the act of creation, I think. But it's not only that. I think I think that let's say when you edit an interview or when I write a story, 
the, the good thing about it is that you have the story well and basically your character outside of his fiction this piece of fiction he doesn't have a history outside of it and he doesn't have a future lurking you know so basically when I write about a character I can think about just what the character is doing because that's what it when I think about myself I know what happened to me five years ago and I know what's yeah. gonna happen tomorrow it's almost like an emotional lab because you take some something from you you put it there in a character and then you say this is a way for me like I don't know when you do in chemistry to separate this element from everything else there's also a lot of coincidence in the movie uh, the one that comes immediately to mind is that the, the young mermaid that comes out of the sea is for some reason is five years old and the, the son of the Filipino daycare person he's also five but that's that's just one of many many uh, coincidences that run into each other and one of the interpretations of coincidence is that it's grace it's the grace of God it's almost like proof that someone or something is at work beyond our comprehension when I write I look for explanations that are stronger than coincidence but here I must say that the resemblance between the different stories let's say there is a, a ship or a boat in each of the stories so the resemblance between those stories came from the fact that we didn't want to create one kind of psychologically realistic character, but we wanted to create some sort of a multi-organism that from all those three stories, one entity will emerge. You know, if you want the story of the Philippine caretaker is the story of the heart of that character, and the story of Batia meets the girl is the story of the soul of that character, and the story of the young bride whose marriage are breaking apart already in her honeymoon, it could be the brain or the rationale of that character. So because we see in each of the story kind of a reflection of the other story, it's like when you have those mirrors one next to each other, and there are many things that are being mirrored in the other stories. I didn't look at it as a coincidence. I looked at it as some sort of more of kind of an aesthetic construction. It's not by chance. You know. Well, that's the. Th I guess that's what I'm getting at is that you, not that you necessarily play God as the author, but you're deciding to put various coincidences at, uh, yeah. to play in your work. And what do most people, when they talk about God in their life and proof of a superior power, what will they point at? they'll point at coincidences. Many times when I see things that are arbitrary in life, I have some need to create some plot that will create some frame or context that will make them stop being arbitrary. I can't deal with their arbitrary. If I would go down the street here in Ottawa and somebody will run to me, spit in my face and keep on running, then I can't say just the guy running down the road spitting on people's face. You know, I would have to make a story out of it just so this moment will kind of make sense, you know, in, in a universal way. If I look like his dad's brother killer who was just out of jail and he f to show his contempt to this killer and by mistake spits on me, now it makes sense. Yeah, I was going to say the word that hasn't come up yet is understanding. It seems to me that what you're saying in your film and perhaps in much of your writing is that most of the time we don't understand each other and art is there to peel away the layers of habit. Oh, no, I think that most of the time we don't understand each other and I think that sometimes in story you can document that 
lack of understanding. I think that it's not as if I think the characters in my stories basically understand each other better than uh, people in real life, but I think that the story itself offers you a perspective, some sort of an outsider perspective on this interaction. And sometimes you can feel and learn things that the characters inside the stories are unable to. The same way that sometimes, I don't know, if you see a conversation between co- two co-workers, you can figure out something that, that they will never figure out. Uh, what you're suggesting is that art puts together opportunities for greater understanding. I think, I think that what art offers us, for me as a writer, but also for a reader, it's this kind of an insider-outsider perspective. Because when I write a story, it is me because it's my emotion, it's what I feel, it's my imagination, it's what's inside my head. But at the same time, I have the safety of an outsider because even if if a car will run down my protagonist, I'm going to be okay. It's like a test run without having to deal with the reality. Writing is a lab in which I can truly learn to know myself without bearing the consequences. Let's say sometimes I do reading and and I'm on stage each reading that I, I do, I, I get there on time, you know, I finish on time, I do my book signing on time, I'm very nice to everybody, and I go back to my hotel. In my stories, in some of those readings, I would kiss the moderator and make love to her on stage. In others, I will pure gasoline on the audience and burn the house down. And in the third one, you know, I would just leave after five minutes and say, I don't feel like it, you know, but I won't do it in real life because it's not fair to all the other people. It will get me into trouble because all those things. So writing can just let me be me, but because it's only my consciousness and there's nobody else there, it could be like realization of what I feel. And in that sense, I think that this kind of release is something that readers feel too. That when you read a book, you say, I know what this guy is feeling, and I also wanted to punch my mother in law. And I won't do it because she's a nice woman and also because it will get me into trouble. But seeing it is recognizing something in me, in our life. It's like we go around the world like a dog on a leash. And then we go into the safe place and we unleash that dog. And it can go crazy and bark and jump and do whatever it can do anywhere else and say, yeah, that's it. And then we put it on a leash again and go back home. And it helps us to keep our sanity. Actually, many people who are fucked up, are threatened by art. It's not that it helps us keep our sanity, but it helps us realize what humanity is all about. I think that we all the time we are in safe mode. Okay. And this safe mode keeps our survival, but we sometimes forget what a human being is. We want to keep our job, we want to keep warm, we want to do all those kind of things, but there's more to humanity than that. And it kind of gives you this realm where you can neutralize stress, fear, force of inertia, and just say, okay, this is what I have inside me, and this is what's worth living for. This is what's beautiful in me and makes me different than uh, this table or even a mouse who runs around the room. So it's a truth that you're speaking to yourself. It it is, I I feel, a very authentic experience. Even though it's not, quote, real. But I find it more real, you know. I find, let's say, many times in my stories or in my movies there are fantastic elements and people kind of uh, say they're unrealistic or mm. it's magical realism. Mm. But I, I say to myself, when we talk about things that are real or, or not real, it's basically we talk about the things that are real are the things that if we have a thousand people in a room and we would vote on them and we say, is that real or isn't it real? Then all the thousand people would raise their hand. We're not talking about our authentic experience. 
if I, I wake up in the middle of the night and I feel that there is somebody in my hotel room and then I say, there, there can't be anybody in my hotel room and I turn on the light and I don't feel that anymore then I say, I must have imagined it, right? But if I write a story, in my story there will be something, somebody in my hotel room because this is what I felt and that was my authentic experience so I'm more committed to what I feel and what I sense which is real I'm not a physicist, you know, I'm not trying to document the ontology of this world. I'm trying to document the ontology of human experience. You bring up Hamlet in the movie uh, Jellyfish. Yeah. When you were talking about that authentic versus surreal differentiation, I thought, of course, of the ghost of Hamlet's father and whether or not we're supposed to see that character as real because Hamlet doesn't just see it on his own. The guards the ghost as well. What you're interested in is is having the audience ask themselves that question. Well, I feel that, you know, if the audience is obsessed with these questions, then I must have failed. Because I think that there's something about the fantastical elements in all my work, in my stories and movies, they are very non nonchalant in nature. They, whimsical, you mean? I don't know English well enough to know what whimsical uh, means, but... Playfulness. It's not, it's not even playful, it's just that it's not a big deal. The, the, the thing is that, let's say, in Latin American magical realism, transcending reality or doing something that is fantastical is basically the catharsis of the text. In my story, magical things can happen on the way, but it's not all about that. The catharsis of the text is when your girlfriend says, I know what you're talking about. The fact that you flew home is really not such a big deal, you know? So there's something about this hierarchy. I don't care about the law of physics. I don't care about borders between countries. I just want to talk to you about this something and I will bend reality and change it in any other way just so I can talk about that thing. So I think that for me, if somebody, let's say, read my stories and ask himself a lot of ontological questions, yeah. then it's legitimate, but it's not the perfect reading or seeing of a work of mine that I would want to achieve. What I would want to achieve the most is that you will be so engulfed by the story that when somebody will ask you, is the little girl real or not real? And you say, doesn't never, matter. I never thought about that. Yeah. Well, is she? But it, but if you sit in time movie and say, is she real? Isn't she real? Is she real? Isn't yeah. she real? Yeah. Because it's not this kind of like a sixth sense kind of movie, you know? Th this is not the question. This is just a, a vehicle that helps you deal with some issues. I'm speaking with Edgar Caret, who is a famed Israeli short story and scriptwriter. If we could get a bit political here, is there a story that you have in your head that ideally could be read by Arabs and Jews to get them to understand each other? This is pretty ambitious, you know, but I must say that even though it's ridiculously ambitious, I did uh, publish a collection of short stories with a Palestinian writer by this, the name of Samir Al Youssef. It's a collection called Gaza Blues. We released it during the second Intifada. It was his initiative and that's exactly what he wanted. He said, let's put some of our texts together so when people from the other side will read them, they will see that we are not that different. Yeah. As he said, he said, the character of your stories and the character of my stories could be best friends. I, I think that, you know, I've, I've written quite a few stories about the region and about the conflict, but I always make it a point, you know, not a conscious one, but it always happens that the conflict is always in the background and not in the foreground. Because the bottom line is that, you know, that when you're an Eskimo, 
and you wake up in the morning, you don't think about snow, and you don't think about coldness. You ask yourself, why does my wife doesn't love me anymore? That's what you ask yourself. And then you go out and you shiver because it's, the cold is out there, but it's always in the back of your mind. So I really think that, you know, there, is, there would be something almost dishonest to write stories where the p- Palestinian-Israeli conflict is in the center of it. Because what's yeah. in it's the contrived, you it, mean? It's contrived. Because yeah. in the center of it, you know, it's like I'm saying, if you see a lot of CNN and you know, learn the conflict through CNN, then it would make sense that you write this kind of story. But the moment that you live inside this reality, you know, then you would write primarily about human emotion and almost a universally human situation, which will have some projection or effect by the crazy situation in which we live. But the center would always be this kind of universal yearning, you know, to be loved, to be safe, to, not connect, to, expe- yeah. to connect, not to experience fear. So that can always be found in my stories, but it's always somewhere in the background. It's like, let's say in Jellyfish, you know, there are very tiny references when one of the characters asked her friend if she's a second generation to Holocaust survivors, and she answers, we're all second generation yes. to something, which is, for me, a very important sentence, because there is this kind of thing that, you know, that in Israel we have a strong term for the second generation of Holocaust survivors, and I'm, my parents are Holocaust survivors. And I always say, you have a name for it, but if you're a second generation to an alcoholic father who never loved you, if you're a second generation for parents who did everything for you but were unable to hug you, we, we're all kind of carrying the scars of our childhood and the scars that our parents passed to us from their own childhood. So it's not a movie about the Holocaust, but it talks about the Holocaust. The same way that, I don't know, it's not a, a, a movie about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but but you have a, a xenophobic old lady that's intrigued by the fact that a Palestinian director wants to direct Shakespeare. Like she says, what, yeah. what does... An Arab, what, yeah, directing what Shakespeare. I, what does, can an Arab do with Shakespeare? You know, so this is a way of touching xenophobia in the Israeli society, but without kind of putting it in the center. It becomes clumsy. It's not clumsy, it's just that when you kind of take this thing and put it in the center, what suffers from is the authentic human representation. It's, it becomes mm-hmm. a statement yeah. with humanity on the side. Well, it sh- should be humanity with a statement on the side. You know, you should decide which is the main course and which is the side dish. Well, it's also like there's an ulterior motive, too. It's like, you know, what are you doing this for? If I would really believe that I can write a book that will improve Israeli-Palestinian reality, I would write it even if I would think it's a crappy book. I would do it as a service for society. I actually believe that the true power of art is that it's things that we put all our energies in it, but it doesn't have a true function. That's what makes art art. It's not utilitarian, you mean? It's not yeah, it's like you can't dig a hole in the ground with a book. You can't cook a steak on a book. You know, the whole idea about it is that you do something that because it has no function, there's almost a kind of an ultimate importance to it. It transcends all this. So the moment that if I take fiction and I try to put a function on it, then I should write an essay, you know. Yeah. I, I shouldn't make a movie. I should go out to and, and participate in a demonstration. And I do that. But uh, I, don't think that, uh, I don't think that this is fiction's role. A couple of years ago, I interviewed uh, Ala al-Aswari, the Egyptian writer who said pretty well exactly the same thing 
that you said. Two or three years ago, we talked about the, the impact of journalism versus novels on the population. A lot of his novels were about freedom and, and democracy, and my sense was that that was a much more powerful statement than an essay was. My position to life, in general, it's a very Socratic position, because I come from a region where everybody's completely convinced that they know what's right and the other are wrong, you know? It's just a question of who you should hang and everything will be okay. Coming from this region, I think that if I can write a work of art that will not make you do something, but will make you less sure that, you, that what you're doing is right, then this is the moral function of what I do. Because, you know, Socrates... Question yourself, then. Or, or make, make, you un, make you unsure, introduce ambiguity to things that you are 100% sure about. Because what Socrates basically did, you know, he went to people... And he said, you're really sure that you know everything about life because you're a priest, because you're a scientist, because you're something, you know? And he made those people a little bit confused. And I think that confusion and ambiguity is uh, the only existing moral situation. Somebody who's not confused, somebody who's extremely sure, cannot be moral. I'm saying it in the, in the most extreme of all ways. You should be frightened of them. And, and all the people who who brought horror to our life were people that were very certain of what they're doing. Mm -hmm. and, f and for me, many times when I meet people, I don't listen to the text, I listen to the subtext. You know, and when I meet fascists, they don't have to be racists, you know, who hate black people. They could be people who are against smoking in public. <laughs> but there is something to their tone and their certainty and the thought that, you know, that people who smoke in public places should be taken out of the street and be shot. Self-righteousness. Yeah, they're like kind of environmental Nazis, you know? <laughs> and, uh, or politically correct Nazis. Correct Nazis. It's this rigidness, this feeling that there is a right way and everything that is outside this way is something that I won't listen to, that I won't feel toward. It's something that really, it, it really transcends specific agendas, you know? You really don't have to be a, a, a racist or a chauvinist or something to be close to reality. You know, and they, to, in my eyes, be dangerous. Final question, and that is, what do you want to achieve in the next 10 years? It's funny because, you know, like, I've, I've finished my, my latest collection. Sorry, what's this, your latest? Story collection. It's called Suddenly a Knock on the Door. It was published in Israel almost a year ago. And in this year, I've been trying to figure out what I want to do. And I was unable to come up with a good answer. You know, like I sometimes write an essay, sometimes write a story. I must say that, that my real ambitions, I'm saying I have those petty ambitions. You know, I, was, I want everybody in the world to read my stories and think I'm great and good looking. You know, I'm not saying that I don't. But my, my real ambitions transcend the role of art in my life. I want to, 10 years from now to be a curious person who finds most of his life interesting and who, although he talks too much, finds in himself the power to listen to other people, to be surrounded by people I care about and that they care about me. And I'm not saying that because I say, okay, let's say a cliche because it's a beauty contest. I say that because I think it's something that is extremely difficult to achieve. This is my challenge. So if I had a goldfish to ask a wish for, I would ask that before saying I want to write the great Israeli novel. I would love to keep on writing, but you know what? If I write something that represents me, I don't care so much what the form will be. I would love as many people to read it, but if it will be something that represents me, I would settle for a lot less than doing a successful 
work of art that I don't think that represents me because when, when I write, I'm my number one reader. You know, if I can make myself happy, everything else is going to be okay. You want to stay curious then so that you continue to produce things that satisfy yourself. I want to stay curious and I hope to produce to satisfy myself, but if I can stay curious and happy without producing things that will satisfy myself, I'm fine with that too. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us and we're happy to listen. Thank you, it was very interesting for me too. I've been speaking with Edgar Karat, who is an accomplished Israeli writer known for his short stories, graphic novels and script writing for film and television. Thanks again. <laughs>